Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Andrew Liffrig. Andrew was fortunate enough to deliver the message to Wallenstein, letting him know that his soldiers will be needed for the siege of Mantua. Good for you, Andrew. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails or click on the link in the description below. More on that later, but for now, enjoy episode 46 of the 30 Years War. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to, well, a brand new recording era of When Diplomacy Fails. You might not be aware, but the reason why this episode was a few days late is because the Blue Yeti, unfortunately, has passed away. After many, many years, I think I got it in late 2015, after many, many years, it was time to put the Blue Yeti to bed. For a few episodes, I think the audio quality was declining a bit, so... I'm very happy to say I'm currently speaking into a Rode NT-USB. I'm not sure what those letters mean, but I do know that that means things are sounding a lot better than they have in quite a while. I'm very happy with this sound, and I'm very happy with the Rode NT-USB microphone. And yeah, let's start this episode as we intend to finish, by welcoming you to the 30 Years' War. So, Last time, we watched La Rochelle fall to the French crown after a siege lasting the guts of a year. The English repeatedly got involved, and Cardinal Richelieu schemed about the best way to achieve his ends as quickly as possible. In the end, there was no way to rush the final showdown with the Huguenots, and for Richelieu, this was a difficult pill to swallow, considering the developments in Germany and North Italy. The Emperor, Ferdinand II, had taken his final steps towards the crushing of his enemies in Denmark, But before he did this, the Edict of Restitution was unleashed in March 1629. At the same time, as we'll see in this episode, the war in Mantua and Montferrat turned against the Spanish in North Italy, and their Savoyard ally was defeated by a French army led in person by the King of France. These two developments provided great opportunities for France in these two key theatres, and now that the Huguenot problem was dealt with, Richelieu was confident that he'd be able to craft and execute a stable, united French foreign policy that was undistracted by domestic woes. He was partially right in this. The task was also made that much more difficult by the decisions of the Emperor to militarily support his Spanish cousins in North Italy, in spite of the warnings of several German princes, among them his Generalissimo, Wallenstein. In this episode, we connect all these dots and see how the simultaneous narratives affected one another and worked themselves out. These details build us a picture of the European situation just before a certain Swedish king intervened in 1630. 
And of course, because of this, they're worthy of our time, as well as being absolutely fascinating. Without any further ado, I will now take you to late 1628. It did not take long for Spanish appeals to the Emperor to bear fruit. In the first week of December 1628, Emperor Ferdinand II wrote to Albrecht of Wallenstein on the question of intervention in the Mantuan War and impressed upon him the importance of the conflict. You'll note in this extract the Emperor's belief that he'd been insulted by the Duke of Nevers, the French candidate for the new position of Duke of Mantua and Montferrat. This was a point underlined by the Duke of Nevers' refusal to consider any compromise or partition of his lands, which was going against the grain somewhat for the traditions of the time. This letter from the Emperor to Wallenstein reads, We inform your grace of the decision made by the ordinary royal Spanish ambassador at our court regarding his efforts to remove the French troops from Italy. Although we would not have wanted to use force for this purpose, if the Duke of Nevers had not insulted our imperial sovereignty and rejected our recent peace offer, to which both Spain and Savoy had recently agreed, and if he had refrained from invading the imperial fiefs of Mantua and Montferrat and dismembering the Holy Roman Empire, of which we expect full information within a few days and will report it to your grace. Thus the emperor claimed, He had not wanted to act in North Italy, but he had felt compelled to act in the interest of his rights and prerogatives as overlord of the two Italian duchies, which Nevers had hastily claimed. Note also Ferdinand's reference to the rejection by Nevers of a peace offer which had been approved by Spain and Savoy. This was the end result of the letter sent by the King of Spain to the King of France, and had been constructed in the first place because both Olivares and King Philip of Spain feared the implications of France being able to focus its full attentions on the Mantuan War now that La Rochelle had been dealt with. In short, the peace overtures had been sent during a time of weakness, and they'd been rejected by France and the then-French candidate, the Duke of Nevers, for these reasons. The toxic blend of offended pride, ignored protocols and opportunism on the part of the Habsburgs motivated this intervention in North Italy, and as a scion of this house, Ferdinand could do nothing but fall in line with the Spanish requests for aid. One should bear in mind that at this point in time, the Emperor had yet to conclude peace with the Danes, and had yet to release the terms of the Edict of Restitution. Spanish satisfaction at the conclusion of the former dilemma was mixed with horror at the ripples of controversy caused by the latter edict. Spain's objections to Emperor Ferdinand's policies throughout 1629 were sourced not from moral grounds. Let's get that clear. It wasn't that they objected to what Ferdinand was doing in principle necessarily, but instead it was based on the fact that they feared the emperor would create problems for himself in the empire and then be unable to help Spain in North Italy. As the letter from the emperor to Wallenstein continued... In these circumstances, we had no choice on account of our imperial office, house and state, but to oppose this start and to meet the threatened violence with force and to protect ours and the empire's rights as best as possible. Therefore, we have warned our dear brother, His Highness the High-born Leopold, Archduke of Austria, to take steps to improve security for this place and to report to us the status of this emergency. 
Meanwhile, Your Grace will send us your advice as soon as possible. Whether it would be appropriate to send the remaining 60 companies of horse and foot that are in the Upper Kreis, that is the Swabian Circle in South Germany, or at least most of them into Italy as the situation requires, and to replace these with troops from elsewhere that Your Grace does not need so badly in the Lower Kreis. We are in no doubt that you will reflect maturely on the reason for such a necessary move and suggest the best means to us. This letter captures the essence of what 1628 meant for the whole Habsburg dynasty. On the one hand, it meant closer cooperation between the Austrian and Spanish branches, symbolised by diplomatic and military assistance, as well as the reinforcement of the family ties, seen in the marriage of the Infanta Maria with the future Emperor Ferdinand III. On the other hand, though, by cooperating more closely with Spain, and by committing to defend the dynasty's reputation on so many fronts, the Holy Roman Emperor added to the strain placed upon his own forces. Worse than that, at a time when he had a real chance to bring about peace in Germany, Emperor Ferdinand committed to war in North Italy, a war which would surely be remembered by the French in the future. The King of Spain, in other words, was pulling the Holy Roman Emperor in too many directions, spreading his forces too thin, right at the moment, when a new phase of the war in Germany was about to begin. He was also making new enemies. Support for the Spanish War in Mantua upset and angered Pope Urban VIII, who refused to approve of Ferdinand's requests to canonise new saints in Bohemia to replace the old ones. The lack of enthusiastic papal support right on the eve of the Edict of Restitution was a problem, and as the years progressed, Emperor Ferdinand's relationship with Pope Urban VIII only grew worse. As he indicated in this letter to Wallenstein, though, Ferdinand believed he had no other choice than to act, since too much was at stake in North Italy to ignore the King of Spain's pleas. A Spanish defeat was as terrible a consequence to contemplate as the reduction in respect for the Emperor's name, which might follow if the Duke of Nevers was seen to defy Habsburg authority and its fiefs and get away with it. Such dynastic concerns were needless distractions in Wallenstein's mind, though, which was a problem, since the Emperor had requested personally that his Generalissimo do as he was told and peel off some soldiers for the Mantuan campaign. Wallenstein had never been quiet about his feelings on the Mantuan affair, and he had weighed in on the conflict early. In March 1628, before the main Spanish Savoyard army had even laid siege to Casal in Montferrat, the Bishop of Mantua had arrived in Vienna on a fact-finding mission to ascertain whether the Habsburgs would unite against the Duke of Nevers. Reporting back to the Duke of Nevers, the Bishop recorded some hearsay which, while second-hand, at the very least suggests Wallenstein's true feelings on the matter. According to this Bishop of Mantua, he had spoken to Ferdinand's court chancellor, and this court chancellor had been present on the council when Wallenstein had arrived in Vienna during the previous months. While in the presence of the council and the Spanish ambassador, so the chancellor said, Wallenstein had told him that If they wanted to wage a war against Mantua and the Duke of Nevers, they should not let the thought enter their heads that they would get a single soldier from him, even if the emperor himself gave the order. It would be an unjust war, as all the laws of the world supported the Duke of Nevers. Now, while this is a third or second-hand source, in many ways, 
It still gels with what we know of Wallenstein's views on the whole situation. Wallenstein, having said that though, would have found himself very much in the minority among Habsburg circles if he had vocalised this opinion. But then again, he had never been one to strive for popularity. Instead, he relied upon his relationship with the Emperor as his personal instrument, and he appreciated that, so long as there was a war to win and he was in a position to win it, it didn't matter that he didn't always agree with the latest policy line. Wallenstein objected on the grounds that the Duke of Nevers had the stronger claim to Mantua and Montferrat in comparison to the Habsburg candidate. Putting aside the need to defend the dynasty's prerogatives and imperial protocol, Wallenstein saw only the naked opportunism of the Emperor and the King of Spain, who wished to score easy points in North Italy at the expense of the German war that he was trying to bring to a conclusion. Objections on grounds of principle were one thing, but we must consider that Wallenstein, the career soldier, was driven most by strategic military concerns. Wallenstein correctly anticipated that intensive Austrian Habsburg intervention in Italy would antagonise the French, and now that they were freed from La Rochelle, France would stop at nothing to avenge itself upon the Habsburgs along the Rhine and in Italy, and all this when Wallenstein expected, soon enough, the arrival of the King of Sweden from the north. The French commitment to the war in North Italy, which Wallenstein had so feared, didn't take long to materialise. As if making up for lost time, Cardinal Richelieu was determined that King Louis XIII himself lead a contingent of men through the winter snows, where the weaker partner of the alliance, Savoy, could be crushed. If this venture was successful, then the Spanish Savoyard force besieging Casale in Montferrat would be forced to retreat, having exhausted much of its reserves in that year-long siege already. Richelieu made his case during a meeting of the Council of State on the 26th of December 1628. He met with some opposition on what must be considered sensible grounds. By this point, even with La Rochelle's capture, much of the south of France still contained malignant elements, and peace was several months away. Furthermore, the plot to cross over the Alps and fight a campaign in the height of winter without an ally appeared almost tantamount to suicidal. Richelieu digested these objections, but argued passionately that France could not afford to look weak any longer. Any additional losses would chip further pieces of her once glorious edifice. Inaction and caution had been acceptable bedfellows during the worst of the Huguenot troubles, but now it was high time to show the Habsburgs, the Germans and the rest of Europe that French power remained considerable even after all the recent trials. That the campaign was associated with the Valtelline passes in North Italy also appealed to Richelieu's sense of strategy. Maintaining Mantua and Montferrat as French satellites in North Italy would work wonders for any future schemes to sever the Spanish road and thus undercut Spain during times of war. Italy, Richelieu insisted, was the centre of the world and must be treated as such. It was a risk, so the Cardinal admitted, but the risks were clear to him. In this question, only the king himself can decide. The possible dangers are too great. In response, King Louis XIII rose to declare his approval of the Mantuan intervention plan, as well as its importance for the wider strategic aims of his realm. What was more, the king was adamant that he should lead whatever expedition ventured towards North Italy. The French army and the French king had much to prove, and Louis was as determined as his wily cardinal minister was to act. 
And so, on the 15th of January, 1629, with 22,000 soldiers, the French king moved south towards Italy. By the 14th of February, he had reached Grenoble, and by now, Richelieu was with him. The heavy snowfalls were already restricting French movement, even before they had left France behind. But both Richelieu and the king were in one mind about the need to push onwards. And push onwards they did. By the 1st of March, the French were encamped at the entrance to the stunning Sousa Valley Pass in the Alps. This was the longest valley in Italy, at over 50 kilometres in length, and it was here that some feverish diplomacy with the Duke of Savoy was entered into. Before they crossed through his lands and assaulted his position in the Mantuan War, Louis advised Richelieu to try and reason with the aged Duke. But Duke Charles Emmanuel of Savoy would not be drawn to compromise. He presented the French representative with a striking set of demands, including that France must openly declare war on Spain, and that Charles Emmanuel must be permitted to seize Genoa before Savoy would side with France and freely allow her soldiers to have safe passage. On the basis of these communications, Richelieu drew up a declaration of war for Savoy. It was said that the Duke acted as though he was at the head of 50,000 men, and Louis only 10,000. In reality, the French army had been reinforced by the besieging force at La Rochelle, and had swollen to 35,000 men. This was more than enough to meet the defensive works erected throughout the Sousa Valley, which led towards the city of Sousa. After several days' march higher and higher into the Alps, the expected resistance from Duke Charles Emmanuel was finally encountered. François de Bassompierre, a courtier, military leader and old friend of King Henry IV, Louis XIII's father, reported to his king after reconnoitering the land ahead. A defensive line three layers deep was described, and the Duke of Savoy was likely expecting them. Nonetheless, the enthusiastic Bassompierre was eager for battle, and attempted to persuade his king to advance. Sire, Bassompierre declared, the guests are gathered, the fiddlers are in their place, the maskers are at the door. If your majesty pleases, we can begin the dance. To this, King Louis replied, Are you aware that we have only five pounds of lead in our arsenal? Bassompierre replied with a laugh, This is a fine moment for remembering that, because the mask is not ready. Are we to miss the dance? Let us begin, your majesty. Everything will go splendidly. Richelieu added his perspective to the conversation by saying, Sire, from the expression on Bassompierre's face, I think we can count on a fortunate issue. Indeed, despite Louis's initial caution, which was reasonable after all, the battle for the Sousa Passes had begun, and by its end, the French would be chasing the Savoyard soldiers to the city of Sousa, which they then besieged. On the 5th of March, Sousa was taken, and the Duke of Savoy was sent a clear message. The King of France was less than 50 kilometres from his capital, at Turin. On the 7th of March 1629 then, just two days later, Savoy made a hasty peace with the French, enshrined in the Treaty of Sousa which followed. During this period of French triumph, English diplomatists secured the conclusion of their dismally unsuccessful war as well. By July, the Treaty of Sousa had grown to accommodate the conclusion of these two conflicts. Richelieu's first significant foray into peacemaking had been met with considerable success. France had achieved its objectives in North Italy, had concluded the dead-end war with England, and now stood to gain from Habsburg overextension. 
but as impressive as these achievements were in 1629, this was by no means the high point of Richelieu's peacemaking diplomacy, as we'll see later. Before we look at that, though, let's turn to France's most significant ally at this time, the Dutch. We're going to look at the Dutch and the Danes and other peace treaties in a bit, history friends, but before we do, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails, being on Patreon. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, I purchased a new microphone recently, and it was really cool because I ordered it from an Irish site called Gear for Music and it arrived like the next day, so that's nice, but it should go without saying that these things cost money, and if not for the financial support you guys provide through Patreon, I wouldn't be able to, well, really do this. I wouldn't have been able to get my new microphone, which has since been christened as Tsar Michael III, I'm sure you'll be happy to know, long may he reign, and I wouldn't be able to do all the other things I do for this podcast as well. To put it simply, supporting this podcast on Patreon is the best way to guarantee that it keeps going. I'm pretty sure that even if I was losing millions every day, I'd still be trying to do this, but that's besides the point. You guys are fantastic for supporting this show, and in return you get some pretty sweet rewards. Now, it should be said, Poland is not yet lost, is on hiatus, so current patrons have been very patient, and soon enough I will be applying my PhD research and basically sharing it with you in a really enjoyable and accessible format, and I'm really looking forward to doing that. But if you hadn't signed up to Patreon yet, you should know that there's about 40 hours of extra content waiting there for you, including such gems as The Suez Crisis, Life After Stalin in the Soviet Union, these two series are called, collectively, 1956, and of course, 40-plus episodes of Poland Is Not Yet Lost, which covers the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth in the 18th century up to the year 1750. And I'm really looking forward to resuming that story once the PhD is done with. Other perks can be gained for you as well. All upcoming ebooks, whether Matchlock in fiction format or other non-fiction books, will all be accessible on the $5 level. And for $12 patrons, the so-called PhD pals, you guys will be able to access all upcoming audiobooks as well, which I will release in pieces or in full, whichever is possible, in the Patreon feed. Patreon has enabled me to bring this podcast to levels I never could have imagined when I started it nearly 10 years ago. So thanks to Patreon for inventing this in the first place, but of course, thanks to you guys for joining up and supporting me. I can't say thanks enough, so I think the best way to do that will be to continue on with the show. Thanks again, history friends, and let's get back to the episode. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. While the French had been upsetting the Spanish and Savoyards in North Italy, the Dutch had been choking the Habsburgs in the Spanish Netherlands with the Siege of Sir de Genbosch, which was progressing well throughout the summer of 1629. Further afield, the Emperor had made peace with the Danes via the Treaty of Lübeck and apparently brought peace to Germany in the process. Although it should be said, this peace was overshadowed by the Edict of Restitution, which outraged moderate Protestants, worried moderate Catholics, and left the militants in Ferdinand's court dissatisfied because they thought he didn't go far enough. Both Wallenstein and his colleague, Count Tilly, were occupied with the task of implementing the Edict, a task which, we will recall, Wallenstein did, but without much enthusiasm. However, he did commit to the dispatch of an army towards the Netherlands with the aim of relieving the siege of Sertigenbosch and endangering the Dutch. Within a few weeks, though, as we saw, Habsburg entanglement in North Italy betrayed this scheme. Rather than send these soldiers to the Netherlands, which really could have changed how the Spanish-Dutch war was going, Wallenstein sent these soldiers to North Italy instead. The reorientation of Savoyard diplomacy towards the French also followed the peace that they made with them. This disaster was then compounded by the failure of the year-long siege of Casal in Montferrat and the staffing of that fortress with French officers. The Duke of Nevers was not duly pleased about a load of French officers arriving there, but he would have little time to make noise. Following Savoy's ejection from the war, Count Olivares in Madrid pressed his king to request that the relief force meant for the Netherlands be rerouted to North Italy instead. Spain had been given the choice between fundamentally changing the course of the Spanish-Dutch war or sending that force to North Italy and participating in the war there instead. Given a choice between the Dutch or the Italian fronts, the king of Spain chose Italy and it had chosen to compete with France there rather than meet the threat which the resurgent Dutch now posed. Raising the stakes, Olivares felt he had no choice other than to unite the Habsburg war effort against France, in the hope that by achieving victory in Mantua, defeat in the Netherlands, and the loss of the Spanish silver fleet the previous year would be somehow forgotten. 
In reality, though, this desperate policy of plugging all the gaps as quickly and as ineffectively as it seemed was possible to do cost far more than it delivered, and it brought to an end the pretense of Ferdinand as the arbiter in North Italy. With the reorientation of soldiers towards Mantua and the repeated letters to Wallenstein requesting that he send more men, 1629 was turning into a year of heavy commitments for the Habsburgs. Well, they chopped off the head of one enemy, another two grew up in its place. To Wallenstein, this mutation of the conflict in Germany from a simple beast to a monstrous hydra was not something he could prevent. Having no control over imperial foreign policy, he could only make his objections known and resign himself to following the emperor's requests as far as his capabilities would allow. A letter sent by Wallenstein to the emperor on the 10th of October 1629 captures the essence of his dilemma most effectively, and it's worth reciting in full here. On that date, in October 1629, Wallenstein wrote, I now humbly report to your Imperial Majesty that after all the troops I had to send to the Netherlands and Italy, there are no more than one company of cavalry and three or four foot left in the Empire, and among those returning from Denmark as well as on this side of the Elbe. Meanwhile, the few troops that I still have on the other side of the Elbe are in posts where they must remain to keep an eye on things, because Sweden's hostile intentions are becoming clearer by the day, and because these posts are spread across 100 miles along the coast, not to mention two positions around Stralsund, as well as posts inland and at points that have to be held in case the Swede comes. There are no troops I could lead into the field, and I had to borrow eight companies from Count Tilly in order to strengthen the positions around Stralsund. The men that your Imperial Majesty sent to Prussia as aid for the King of Poland have been so affected by hunger and grief that there are no more than 5,000 left. From this you will see that it is not possible to send the 7,000 or even a company in these circumstances, since there are everywhere states and others ill-intentioned whose machinations may well cause a general uprising in the Empire and force your Imperial Majesty to continue the war. No means can be spared in the coming spring, let alone sending reinforcements to the Netherlands. But on the contrary, more men should be recruited so that yourself and your kingdoms and lands, as well as the empire, are not endangered. Wallenstein's overarching worry of Swedish intervention at this stage is palpable in this letter, and his account also brings forward a quite valid question, namely, Where on earth had all the soldiers gone? Well, by October 1629, many had been lodged in garrisons, some had been transferred to the wars in Poland, the Netherlands, or North Italy, and a select number had deserted as well. As the money in Wallenstein's private stores dried up, it became necessary to leverage contributions from larger segments of the population. To do this, though, he needed to keep increasingly large segments of his army occupied with the tasks of intimidation collecting contributions, and arranging the timely transportation of said contributions to where they were needed most. This process was complex, time-consuming, and far from ideal. Wallenstein would have preferred to have retained his private fortune and pay the debts with his own assets, with the emperor paying him back at a later date. But these debts had grown so enormously, and the emperor seemed so unlikely to pay them back, that for Wallenstein to keep covering them, was just simply unfeasible. 
It was in this trying position that Wallenstein urged the emperor to speak to the Infanta, the Archduchess of the Spanish Netherlands, and appealed to her on the grounds that she must fight her own battles because the emperor's resources could not afford to fight these battles for her. Wallenstein continued, I also hope that the Dutch army will be depleted through the siege of Sertiganbosch, and because winter is just before the door, will not be able to do anything more. Therefore, because your Imperial Majesty cannot spare any men or send them to the Netherlands, your Majesty should advise the Infanta in good time that she should use the winter to collect sufficient troops in order to resist the enemy better in spring. Unfortunately, Wallenstein had evidently become the victim of the restricted German postal service because this request demonstrates that he was uninformed. Unbeknownst apparently to Wallenstein, by the 10th of October 1629, the Dutch had been in control of Sertigenbosch for nearly a month, having captured it after a lengthy siege on the 14th of September. But while these losses were serious, there was a silver lining that could make itself felt in time. The one major contribution Wallenstein had made to that siege had been redirected, as we've seen, towards the Mantuan War. But this decision did bear fruit. In September, these reinforcements arrived to begin a siege of Mantua, the first city of the Duke of Nevers' property portfolio. The task was a formidable one, and it appeared to be as ill-fated as that siege undertaken against Casal. The Imperial Army was forced to abandon the siege altogether during the height of winter in December 1629, thanks to a lack of progress and provisions. For one key reason, though, when they returned in May 1630, the siege was a great deal easier. The Imperial Army was aided by a new ally. It wasn't an ally that they could order around or control in any way, and it was just as likely to turn on them. The ally was plague, and it had ravaged the city of Mantua, effectively gutting the garrison there and decimating the ability of the citizens to resist. Because of this, on the 18th of July 1630, Mantua surrendered, as did the Duke of Nevers, and the city endured a three-day sack, superseded in its horrors only by that of Magdeburg a few months later. We'll return to the developments of the Mantuan War at a later date, but for now, it suffices to note that while negotiations at Regensburg were underway throughout 1630, this conflict was on the mind of those German princes that attended. These princes were highly concerned. The Emperor's willingness to wage war in different theatres, endangering the relationship of these Germans with the French in the process, was becoming very difficult to stomach. However, it was the mistaken belief that Wallenstein pulled the strings and that this generalissimo was the blunt instrument which Emperor Ferdinand could never relinquish that truly empowered the opposition. The reality was less straightforward as we've seen. Wallenstein was appalled by the increasing range of military commitments which the Emperor kept pledging his soldiers to. He was also feeling the economic pinch of enduring in a state of war for such long periods as the incomes from his considerable estates no longer recovering the whole cost of maintaining such a vast amount of men in the field. And this is before the King of Sweden is even brought into the equation. Throughout 1629, Wallenstein had feared that the withdrawal of soldiers from Germany and sending them towards Italy or anywhere else left the door open for Gustavus Adolphus to enter. On top of all this, thanks to the Edict of Restitution, Wallenstein was learning that portions of Germany were going into business for themselves 
resisting efforts to implement the edict wherever this was attempted. Where he had once been an irreplaceable conduit of the Emperor's will, if the rumours were correct, then Wallenstein would soon be little more than a bargaining chip of the Emperor in his looming meeting with the German princes and potentates. Curiously, perhaps, and this only serves to further go against the boogeyman legend of Wallenstein's power, the Generalissimo was more amenable to the idea of his dismissal than might have been expected, provided he was suitably reimbursed for his service, of course, but at the same time, he was perplexed and made ill by the refusal of the court in Vienna to listen to his strategic concerns. In scenes that really are reminiscent of Spaniola's attempt to paint the situation in as stark and realistic terms as possible to Madrid. Really, Ambrogio Spaniola and Albrecht of Wallenstein had quite a lot in common as the long-suffering generalissimos of the increasingly ignorant and burying their head in the sand branch of the Austrian and Spanish Habsburgs. In the final analysis, it must be argued that Wallenstein was right to fear the strategic implications of Habsburg overextension, just when the King of Sweden was concluding his Polish war. Indeed, Wallenstein was right to fear, and the Emperor was fatally mistaken in his unwillingness to listen. In the next episode, we move our narrative to the even juicier year, if that's possible, of 1630, where several clouds loomed over the imperial diet at Regensburg. Emperor Ferdinand II came with his wish list, but so did the princes and major potentates of Germany, and many were well sick of being ignored in favour of Ferdinand's interests. 1630 was thus to be the year of showdowns, both within the confines of Regensburg and without to the north, where the army of King Gustavus Adolphus of Sweden marched into Germany. I hope you'll join me for that momentous episode, history friends, but until then, my name is Zach. You've been listening to my first new episode on the Rode NT USB microphone. All hail Michael III, and this has been episode 46 of the 30 Years War. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. Make sure to check out Matchlock if you haven't already, and I'll be seeing you all Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 